0: Well, last week we finished up our look at Romans 8 and uh, came to that climactic end with, you know, all his, all of Paul's rhetorical questions. You know, who can bring a charge? Who can stand against us? Who can separate us? All these wonderful rhetorical questions as Paul asked us, what shall we say to these things? Uh, and we use that as an ending to Romans 8, but also an ending to uh, our, little, our little question of, What's the therefore of the resurrection? And so now we have come to an end of that study. And so we are jumping back to conclude our look at, at John's epistles. We, as you might remember, uh, back when we were looking at 1 John and we finished that. And so we thought we would take a few weeks and just consider Second and Third John uh, before we move on to uh, to some other texts and, and uh, studies. So our text today is 1 John. And we're considering verses 1 through 6. Uh, excuse me, 2 John. Uh, verses 1 through 6. And this is on page 1085 in your Bibles. And so I'll go ahead and read it. Since we didn't read the text, we've read around it in, uh, in Proverbs 31, in Revelation 2, and in Revelation 12. <clears throat> but I'll go ahead and read the text for us this morning as we consider uh, the beginning of 2 John. 2 John only one chapter, verses one through six. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly, that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Well, again, if you remember back to 1st John, then this language of 2nd John is very familiar. We can sense John. Although I will tell you at the outset, there's some debate as to whether or not John, this is authored by John, um, but most, most commentators believe it is. But I mentioned to you that there is, some, uh, there is some debate over that, as there is some debate over who this is written to, um, you know, because there's some oddities, right? John referring to himself uh, as the, just simply as the elder, Okay, and, and that has to do with his role within the church, but also just he's an old man uh, writing this letter uh, to them. Who is this elect lady? There's debate over that. Uh, is this written to a specific woman um, about her and her children uh, and her sister, as we're told in the end, uh, her, her sister uh, greets her. Um, And again, there are some commentators who say, yes, this is written to a specific lady, they think. And many commentators who believe, no, John is speaking metaphorically here. John is using the image of a woman uh, as a metaphor for the church. Again, as we saw in Revelation 12, an image and metaphor that the Lord Jesus Christ uses in his revelation to John about the church uh, is that of a woman. And so I... The position we're taking this morning, just to lay it out at the outset, is that uh, John wrote this and that uh, he is writing to and about the church, that the lady, the elect lady in this case, is the church, the bride of Christ. And clearly John is speaking very, he's holding to his metaphor consistently because he even addresses her uh, midway through and down in verse 5, and now I plead with you, lady, Okay, so he, he's, sticking, he's sticking with it. If, in fact, uh, he is regarding the church, he's sticking with this metaphor uh, throughout the, this short little letter. So I want us to think today about this image of the church and then the characteristics of this church, at least through the eyes of John, and again, relating back to what we've heard about the church in 1 John, but how he picks it up here, namely truth and love, truth and love. And what does that mean for us as a church? And maybe a chance for us to assess how we're doing as a church, but also how we're doing as individuals. Because these are the two uh, grand descriptions, at least that are the focus of John here as he comes to uh, this church, as he has to the church of Ephesus. So first, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. This image of the church as a lady goes all the way back into the Old Testament. And granted, that's not what I think is necessarily going on in Proverbs. I think in Proverbs, uh, we we just have Solomon describing for his son uh, uh, the the model of a wife and, and what he should seek. But nonetheless, that fits then for the image of the church in the Old Testament where Israel was considered to be the bride of God. Right. You think particularly of the of passages like uh, uh, Ezekiel uh, sixteen, uh, Hosea, uh, Hosea chapter two, uh, where we have these images of the people of God uh, in a metaphor of a woman, and God's love for Israel as for a bride, and yet Israel's unfaithfulness, right? Her rejection. So the, even that covenantal relationship between God and His people is put into the idea of marriage, something very tangible, something we can get our minds around. As the relationship of a husband and a wife, so the relationship between God and his people. And we can think about the kind of husband, if you will, that God is, the faithfulness of a husband who gives his life for the sake of his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, we know that the marriage is taken up and given to us, Not marriage is not the metaphor in that case, but marriage, our marriages and the marriages of the Ephesian church are presented as parables now. Your marriage, he's saying, is to be like a parable. It's to be a living sermon that proclaims the love of God for his people and Christ for his church. And therefore we have to think about that as we are engaged in our, in our marital relationships. Because in, in so much as our marriages uh, are public, they are proclaiming the relationship of Christ and his church. And therefore, in as much as we fail in these things, we are, we're, we're essentially false teachers. <laughs> we're, we're declaring something wrong to the world about either the kind of husband that Christ is to his church or what the church is to uh, her husband in obedience and, and love and commitment. And of course, the same thing is true in parenting and many of our relationships, even, even in, in Ephesians chapter 5, right, even the relationship between bosses and employees, that all our relationships in life are like enacted little sermons. They're all they're all meant to uh, point to and manifest in our in our obedience and in our love the relationship of God and His people. So in the Old Testament, Israel uh, Israel was represented as the the bride, if you will, and Jehovah as the bridegroom. And then in the New Testament, now it becomes more specific as it is the church and it is Christ who is the bride. In Revelation chapter twelve, the reason we I chose that passage today is because, and it's a passage we've looked at before. Here we see again this image, right? This woman who is pregnant and she gives birth and the child is taken up to heaven, right? So we have an image that some view as Mary, but I think again, this is, it sort of represents, if you will, Old Testament Israel that gives birth to the Christ and he is taken up to heaven and so the serpent, right, who is there, and he wants to, he wants to kill uh, this child, this long foretold child. But he can't. The serpent can't get his hands on the child. The child is uh, snatched up to heaven, we're told. So he can't get. He can't get the child. So then he goes after the woman. He he wants to destroy the woman, but the woman, we're told, is taken out into the wilderness and preserved. And so he he spews out this this flood. And the Lord opens up the earth and swallows the flood so that the woman is preserved. So we have an image of Satan who wants to destroy Christ but can't. And then goes after the church, after the the people of God. But he can't get them either. And then we're told he goes after her offspring. The children of Israel and the children of the church. And those he is able to torment. Now, what do we make of this? How do we relate to this? Because in some sense, we have that imagery going on here. To the elect lady and her children. Now, if we we take that the elect lady is the church, then who are the children? You say, well, the children are are the people of God. Yeah, but they're the church. So what's the deal here? And again, you have this imagery in Revelation 12. The woman is taken out into the wilderness and preserved, but her children are able to be persecuted. In fact, they are persecuted. They have to deal with the serpent as he comes after them with full intensity. And if you can remember back to our discussions on Revelation 12, what we said was that the woman is the church in principle, Right, the woman is capital T, capital C, the church. And the church will prevail. The church cannot be touched. The church is like uh, Screwtape says in in uh, in one of his letters, C.S. Lewis has the, the the image of a church, like an army marching through history with banners waving. Right? It can't that that's the kind of thing that sends fear into the into the heart and mind of every tempter, Screwtape says. That that's the church. But the offspring of the church are the individuals that make it up. The church cannot be touched. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And you and I are part of the church. But we are not the church. Right? We're part of the church. right? We're, we, you and I as individuals, are not the whole church. We are the offspring of the church. Yes, we make it up, but also now we are individuals within this body. And in Revelation 12, while the church, the church, cannot be touched, it will march through history like an army with banners, nonetheless, the individuals, the offspring of the church, not only can be touched, they will be touched. Right? We we will. Uh, have to engage. In we're gonna to have to put on the full armor of God every day because we're gonna find ourselves in spiritual warfare and dealing with Satan, right? We're not lifted out into the, the wilderness, if you will, and preserved with the with the earth opening up and swallowing the torment and the flood of the evil one. No, we have to engage him directly. The offspring of the church, you and I, the individual people of God, face these challenges and temptations every day. And we see the distinction here. To the elect lady, the church, and to her children. Right? To the individuals, the offspring of the church. To you as individuals, whom I love. And I just love this because John doesn't just minister to the church. John loves the church. He loves the people of God. And then we get this first introduction of this concept of love and truth together. Whom I love in truth, and we're gonna we're gonna look at these two individually here in a second. To the elect lady and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all those who have known the truth, because the tr- because of the truth which abides in us and will be forever. And then we have his uh, beautiful bless uh, uh, introduction: grace and mercy and peace will be with you or be with you from god the father and from the lord jesus christ the son of the father in truth and love so john introduces himself again to the lady and notice even in his introduction uh which you get in verse three if you're reading along it's like you recognize this introduction because we hear it a lot from paul and sometimes from john right grace and peace to you but here we have that the the three grace mercy and peace be with you and notice not only from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ, but John feels the need to draw in the familial relationships here. right? He's drawing on this idea of the church as the bride of Christ and this relationship between Father and Son. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Again, there's not some deep point to be made there, but what John is doing is he's framing the whole context of this little letter in these familial relationships, right? The relationship of the church to God, God to God is a relationship of this familial, whether it's bridegroom to bride, father to son, we have this familial relationship of love and truth. Okay, so we have a letter written to the church, to the offspring of the church? And what is his desire for us? What's the call to us? Again, it's a call to love and to truth. So let's consider these two uh, individually for a second. The woman, the bride of Christ, what what is she characterized by? These two things, love and truth. First, she's characterized by truth. I love you and I love you in the truth that we as the people of God here at affirmation, but in the church universal are a people of the truth. Our unity, our love for one another is a love that is anchored in something true. That is to say, we're not here just simply because I like you guys, although I do like you guys, But our unity is anchored in a confession that we say in every service. That is what unites us here. If that is not true, we may find reasons to hang out together. But if that's not true, then the point of our union here is really pointless. What brings us here and unites us as brothers and sisters, what makes us family and not just mere friends, is truth. Because we believe in the one triune God. We believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We believe that Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God, lived a perfect and righteous life. That he was crucified for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was dead and buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the grave, uh, from the dead and walked out of the grave bodily. And we believe that Jesus Christ is even now at the right hand of the Father, invested with all authority in heaven and earth. And we believe that Jesus Christ is coming again to take his church home and to judge the world in righteousness. And we believe that we, through him, our co-heirs, and that we will be with God in perfect communion forever and ever. That's what we believe. We anchor ourselves to that truth. We better. And those things cannot mold themselves over time as our culture tends to do. Our culture tends to be one that doesn't understand well the concept of truth. What is truth? So asked Pontius Pilate 2,000 years ago. What is truth? Our culture is still asking it. We don't know what to do with it. Something could be true today, but not true tomorrow. It shifts and bends with the flow of culture, but not so for the kingdom of God. Because the truth is a person. Right? Truth became incarnate in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no way to God, there is no way to full union even amongst us as the people of God, except through him. The lady, the elect lady, the lady that God chose, the people of God, the church, is a lady characterized by truth. An unwavering commitment to the truth. And don't we see, when we look back through, and this is why it's wonderful for you to go study your church history, that when we consider the history of the church, we see men and women who held without wavering to the truth, regardless of what the cost was. In Revelation chapter 12, the dragon comes after the people of God, and that's what the church can expect. When you hold to the truth, the dragon seeks to kill you. Right? When you hold to the truth, the dragon seeks to kill you. I was just listening to a talk from... Um, I'm a, I think I maybe I shared with you. I don't know. I'm on this weird Navy SEAL kick. And uh, and I'm listening to a bunch of these military guys talk about this and talk about that. And some of it's on leadership and some of it's on military history. and It's all fascinating. And so they were analyzing this one work of a guy who had survived the Battle of the Somme in World War I and, and now was writing a book for the military coming into World War II and talking about how, you know, he had he had, had to live in and fight through the Battle of the Somme where if you know anything about World War I, it was just so unbelievably horrible and these battles where you had guys who were still fighting with 19th century strategies and tactics and now having to deal with machine guns and chemical weapons and you know tanks and so on. And so you get these, these leaders and they would just send wave after wave after wave of men over the you know, out of the trenches, over the banks, run through no man's land, basically get mowed down by machine guns. And then, okay, next charge, go. You know, and send the next group over there and they get mowed down by machine guns. Okay, third group up, go. You know. And this guy survived that and he wrote back afterwards about how difficult it was to get leaders to change their way of thinking like group after group after group is being mowed down by machine guns. At some point, we need to change strategy. And he had a little comment in there, in this book that they were analyzing on, on, from this guy after World War I, that truth, he says, and he's not writing this as a Christian, uh, Christian writer or pastor or anything like that. He was actually writing about military tactics. But he said, you must be prepared for this because now he's writing to leaders in the military that truth will always find opposition. That is truth, if you're going to proclaim what you think is true, be prepared because it will always be opposed. And you've got to fight through that. You can't just say, well, I feel the opposition, I'm making a declaration that I believe is true, and I'm feeling the opposition, and so I buckle, I cave. No, if it's true, then you must fight through. You must. The opposition to your proclamation must be expected. Truth is just never readily accepted. It's not proclaimed and people just embrace it. Oh, thank you for telling us the truth. That when you proclaim the truth, it's going to face resistance and you must have the nerve to push through it. If in fact you're convinced it's true. And it's like, yeah, that's not just, it, that's true anywhere, right? You you come and you try to bring somebody something you believe is true, and it's going to bring change to your business or to your family or to a friend, right? Very rarely does somebody just embrace it, e- even if they know what you're saying is true. I certainly, if Christina were here, she could, uh, she could testify oftentimes, right? She'll tell me something, and in my heart, I know it's true, but I'm like very angry at her for telling for telling it to me and then later in the day i have to apologize and tell her no I, the reason i was so angry is because i knew what you were saying is true right that that this thing i worked so hard on is not up to par or it's not going these plans i had are not going to work and i need to change my plans what you're telling me is true but i i didn't want to hear it right what i wanted to hear was just a reaffirmation of what i'm already doing i want you to tell me it is suitable even though oh my gut i knew it wasn't But when you tell me the truth, I don't know, there's this weird opposition that just comes up against it. And if that's true for military tactics, if that's true just for natural things in our life, how much more true is that when we bring an absolute undermining of a whole culture's worldview? When we tell a person that your whole way of viewing life, all the most important things, is wrong. Do you not think there will be opposition to this? And then it becomes very easy for the church to start shaving off the hard edges of what we believe is true. We start bending to conform to a culture. If you're like me, you dread awkwardness. And so it's very easy then to start shaving off the things that are going to make things awkward for the church, for a Christian in society. But for John, no, the, my very love for you is in the truth. The truth is what defines us. And so we hear an affirmation. We must be careful to guard the truth. This is why we confess our faith every week. Now, granted, it becomes natural to us, right? The Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. But why it's important that you should look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. Because here we say this kind of boils down some of the things we believe and we're committed to these things. Ultimately, it's the scriptures. Are we reading our scriptures? The scriptures are the revealed truth of God's word. Do you know them? If you don't know the scriptures, it's very hard not only to defend them, but to affirm them. What exactly are you affirming? When Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind in what? It it must be in this. But the amount of time that you and I spend soaking in the American culture as opposed to the amount of time that we spend soaking in the Word of God. Very challenging to have our minds renewed and transformed in this with the amount of time that, again, they're just absorbing, even if we want to resist it, absorbing what we get from the American culture. Right? We have to be careful. We are people of The truth. This is the beauty of the lady. Of the elect lady. Is truth. And then secondly. Love. It's truth and love. The relationship with the father. Grace, mercy and peace. Be with you from God the father. And from the Lord Jesus Christ. The son of the father. In truth and love. So John's desire is for you. That you have grace, mercy and peace. But that that grace, mercy and peace from the triune God, come to you in truth and in love, in that agape love. And we won't go through the different forms of love again. We know this well. But the love he is talking about here is that agape love. The love that defines the church is that self-giving love, the self-pouring out love of the people of God for God, Right? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind soul and strength, but also the love that we are to have for one another. Now Mark mentioned in in his opening prayer today that the problems we have when we have one over the other and it's this is a problem for any church right to, to, to make the scales of of love and truth which are to work beautifully together. But the danger in any church, for any people, for any individual, is to allow one to dominate the other. And I think, Mark, what did you say? You said, uh, you said love, uh, love without truth was sentimentality and truth without love is judgmental. That's good. Right? Truth without love is abrasive. Truth without love is harsh. Truth without love is divisive. And this is not, I mean, this is not, this is not a problem that is unknown to reformed churches. Right? Very easy to be so passionate about the truth that we just become obnoxious people. Right? You walk into a church and you just know it's not a friendly, welcoming place or forget a place how about individuals people who are so passionate about the truth that the first thing they want to know when they meet you is what you believe about this this and this and next thing you know you're in combat you're like in you're like in theological combat with somebody churches can fall prey to this and it is it's abrasive and offensive Mark's word was judgmental. It can be, right? Because our first thing is we're looking at people and judging whether or not they hold the right beliefs. That's the first thing I want to know or I'm thinking about when I come to somebody or maybe how we think about other denominations. can lead to pride, right? Truth without love leads to pride. It's not humble. Right? It, it, knowledge, Paul says, puffs up. But love seeks to edify. But that's what knowledge does. When we start to be confident that we know stuff. We have our ducks in a row. We believe the right things. Look at our confession. It's really long. Like we're not satisfied with the Apostles' Creed anymore. We wrote one much longer. We, got, we really got thorough on this thing. Here's what we believe. And it's wonderful. Of course, it's, the, the Westminster Confet- Confession of Faith is a wonderful, massive document. But it can also be used, it can be weaponized, right? Weapon-grade Westminster Confession of Faith. You don't want that. You know, where we use it to thump people over the head or to exclude people. Nonetheless, we must hold to it firmly. Because love without truth is mushy. Love without truth is formless it's sentimental as mark said it becomes sentimentality it becomes all feelings and no substance love without truth is spineless it's spineless love again it's filled with warm fuzzies right it's mushy but it's spineless it never calls someone to account it doesn't love in such a way that it holds a person to the truth and recognizes that a person's wandering away in error and that sometimes love hurts sometimes love has to call a person out but if you if you don't have truth then you, it doesn't do that love is love is formless it just kind of oozes its way through life bending around every hard thing it just kind of you know warps around it Never holds to anything and therefore never says the awkward and uncomfortable thing and this is a danger look every one of us in here is, is unbalanced toward one or the other either you're unbalanced to be somebody who 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 would be defined of the two as that of love you just love people and you need to hear the call to affirm truth to 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 uh, to grow the spine of truth. To learn to say the hard things. And to be unbending. Even if sometimes it is offensive. Because truth offends. And that's hard for the person who's imbalanced that way. And some of you are imbalanced toward truth. We're all imbalanced. So don't be offended by that. <laughs> I love you. All right, um, but, but But some of us are imbalanced the other way. Right, we're just so committed to truth, but find out that we haven't been very loving. That we're not checking on people and seeing how they're doing. <laughs> we're, we're too busy reading, you know. We're too busy studying, you know. We're too busy, you know, again, uh, uh, bi- developing the roots of truth. But for John, the lady is one that has both, and an affirmation may it be true of us. John brings this down as commandment. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. Interesting that he says some. I rejoice greatly. He, he's just happy that some of, the, some of the people of God are walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you lady not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. And you remember this language from 1 John, right? This is not a new commandment brothers and sisters. This is what Jesus gave us. In the upper room. Jesus, when he is on his way to the cross, as he's breaking the bread, which is his own body, as he's pouring out the wine, which is his own blood, and giving it to the people, the night before he's going to be beaten, endure the wrath of God, die on the cross for the sins of his people, Jesus says, I leave you with this commandment. Okay, seems pretty important. That In this moment, Jesus says, here's what I'm leaving with you. And he says to you, A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Like That's it? That's the the big reveal? The night before you go to the cross? Love one another? Yes, love one another. As I have loved you. You thought what you knew it meant to love one another. But now watch this. And Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, disrobes himself, gets a basin of water, And washes the feet of his disciples. And then the next day goes to the cross. And then that meaning of love one another as I have loved you really comes into very frightening focus. And it's not the only time it's told to us. Again, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. John is saying, guys, this is not a new commandment To us, Jesus has given it to us and Jesus has modeled it for us. Jesus has achieved it for us. I now plead with you, lady, not as though I write to you a new commandment, but that which you have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments, because the, again, the very essence of the commandments, if you remember this first John is that you love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself that we pour ourselves out for God and we pour ourselves out for one another. We pour ourselves out for the one true God and we pour ourselves out for one another. May this be true for us here at Affirmation and for us as individuals, that we as the lady, Affirmation, and we as the offspring of the lady, us as individuals, may we be those who walk in truth and love to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we are imbalanced. We confess that we we can swing either towards sentimentality or towards judgmentalism. We can can swing, Lord, either to an offensive affirmation of the truth and let, let come what may regarding the casualties. Or, Father, we can swing over to the other side to a spineless, mushy love which just loves people and never confronts, never holds to anything solid. And so, Father, because it is our nature to swing back and forth, because it is our nature to be imbalanced, we pray that as the elect lady, as your bride, which you have chosen, not because we're so beautiful, but simply because you loved us, that as the elect lady, you might evermore conform us into the image of your son. Help us as a church to look more and more like the bridegroom. Conform us to his image, that we might be those who love and who love in truth and to those who hold unflappably to the truth but who do so with love for our neighbor and for our brother and sister in Christ and ultimately for you. So Father, by your spirit, work that out within us, we pray. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen.